This is the Breaker.News podcast for the week of November 12, 2023. I'm Bob Mackin, publisher of the Breaker.News and host of the Breaker.News podcast. Welcome to edition number 316. The Breaker is your source for news, opinion, and analysis about British Columbia issues, institutions, and influencers. Later, I'll tell you how you can support The Breaker. On this edition, headlines from the Pacific Rim and the Pacific Northwest, I award a virtual Nanaimo bar to a difference maker, and the big deal feature. Joining me from London, England, is Eric Kaufman, the Vancouver-raised professor of politics at the University of Buckingham and the new Center for Heterodox Social Science. Professor Kaufman is getting ready to teach a course called Woke, the Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an Elite Ideology. Is it just me, or what really is going on with West Bank, the dynamic developer of tall towers and swanky skyscrapers? Ian Gillespie has remade downtown Vancouver with Tallis Garden, Shangri-La, and Vancouver House, to name just a few. Gillespie's buddy is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who helped arrange a $1.4 billion federal loan to West Bank's joint project with the Squamish Nation called Sanak. When rumors persisted about West Bank's bankruptcy, I tried to get to the bottom of it, but nobody at West Bank returned my phone calls or email. Then the Globe and Mail reported about an $8 million-plus lawsuit in Toronto, where Ellis Don Construction claims West Bank has not paid its bills. The privately held company sent a newsletter to real estate agents calling talk about its demise both malicious and false. But it didn't send the same to this persistent reporter. With high interest rates and higher construction costs due to inflation, it's not an easy time to build luxury condos, even harder when the China market is not thriving anymore. This is the Big Deal feature on the Breaker.News podcast. Joining me from London, England is Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at the University of Buckingham and the new Center for Heterodox Social Science. Eric has an interesting career in research and teaching about cultural politics, ethnicity, national identity, left-wing ideology, and religion. He's originally from Hong Kong, but grew up in Vancouver. Here is part one of my interview with Eric Kaufman. Talk about how your upbringing in Vancouver shaped you uh, as, a, as an academic, how it shaped you as uh, someone curious about uh, how the world works, how it shaped you. Uh, to become a professor of politics. I was born in Hong Kong. My my father was with the Canadian embassy out there. And then the next year we were in Tokyo where I was for six years before moving to Vancouver. And, and then we even did two more years in Tokyo. So um, sort of international, Far Eastern, a little bit of, of that experience, uh, which I think was important, you know, partly about becoming interested in things such as national identity and, and nationhood and so on. Uh, Vancouver, yeah, I mean, obviously, the context of Vancouver, I suppose, is also an important part of the story as a sort of ethnically shifting uh, city when I was growing up, still is, obviously, but, um, you know, that combined with my international uh, experience, I think those two kind of shape my interests a certain amount in nationalism and ethnic change and all of that. Um uh, and so, yeah, that was always an interest going forward. Now, I initially didn't, I, w- I was initially, my my dad was moved into the sort of pulp and paper forest sectors, which of course in BC were uh, quite important uh, in the export trade to Japan. And then, uh, you know, I was kind of headed in that direction, did a year of forestry at UBC, but I always had an interest in the social sciences. And after a year I was working in Northern Alberta, actually, uh, I, I went 
wound up going to London. My my father as a diplomat had many colleagues who'd heard about the LSE. I'd never heard of it, but I went there for a year and then just wound up getting meeting some interesting people and and taking some interesting courses. Uh, and then I was I was still intending to come back. One thing after led to another, and then pretty soon I was out there. But um, I would definitely say that that uh, growing up in Vancouver played a part in my interests. Yeah. I asked Eric Coffin about the divisions politically and culturally, especially between the extremes in the far left and the far right. Sometimes they have more in common than they would ever admit. This is one of the things that a lot of well-meaning progressives miss is that when you are often when you're trying to be nice to one group, you're actually not being nice to another group. So, for example, if you want to be um, super nice to trans people then you may not be very nice to women or or gays for various reasons. I mean, it may be women's spaces. It may be uh, about gay conversion, telling people who who are feminine but male that they might be a, a woman. You know, so so there are actually a lot more sort of trade offs involved rather than simply being nice, which is sort of the way these things are sold. And I think something similar uh, when we talk about. Um, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict, for example, uh, you know, when you are sort of allowing demonstrations, for example, uh, in, in for solidarity with Palestine, what is the impact on British Jews, for example, or, or Canadian Jews? And so there is always a matter of trade-offs. It doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do a particular policy, but the way these things have been sort of sold is... It's an unalloyed good. We have to be nice, and therefore we can't be critical of um, anything that is done in the name of a uh, group that has been historically disadvantaged. Uh, and I think, you know, and, and actually, I mean, an, another thing that is not acknowledged is that if you think it is nice to attack the past of a country like Canada or Britain or the United States, you are actually doing a lot of damage to people who who have an investment in those symbols and that collective memory. And that, again, is something that is simply ignored when a st statue is toppled. That's just seen as sensitivity to groups that have historically been harmed. But of course, we never talk about what that means. If those are meaningful symbols to members of, say, the majority community, do their concerns not count? Uh, and should we not be having more of a, a rounded conversation about these things? What did you learn from studying the Orange Order that uh, can be applied to today's uh, more modern uh, strife that we're seeing, and, and also the tribalism that we're seeing, uh, you know, here in Canada, in the U.S., how politicians seem to be dividing and conquering for their own goals to get the votes and the donations they want and need? Uh, how did you? How does that apply to today? Well, I mean, I think that Northern Ireland, you have a situation where history, the past, lives very much in the present. I mean, it's not necessarily a problem to commemorate and to have a culture and a tradition. The problem comes when um, you sort of look at the worst of the past on the other side and you sort of try and uh, make hate live generation after generation. Uh, I think you can have a... a, a strong attachment to ethnicity, to ancestry, etc., but do so in a way that is sort of positive and optimistic and non-zero sum. And that's often the way it is, by the way, um, actually. Um, but once you allow sort of 
competitive victimhood-based nationalism to take root, then you're into to a big problem. I mean, I think, you know, it was the Hutu saw the Tutsi as being people who enslaved them and their their ancestors, and the Tutsi uh, saw the Hutu as people who were essentially going to kill them. And, 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 you know, obviously you had these myths built up about the other side, and those things can be repeated and, and transmitted over the generations. I mean, I think what we have in Western countries in terms of polarization is a little different. It's not running on all, along ethnic lines per se. It is to some degree, but it's it's much more about divisions within, let's say, the white majority population between people who like difference and change and people who see difference as disorderly in some way and change as a, as a loss, as a form of loss. And uh, this is very deeply psychological. And so what you get is you get a sort of splintering of the electorate along these cultural psychological lines. And it's not really about income. Um, and it's even not so much about age and education, even though those are more important. Uh, but it's just a psychological difference, cultural difference. And people are hunkering into those two tribes, and we would call them sort of progressive and, and conservative or populist. Oh, some have used terms like open and closed, which is quite pejorative in some ways. Um, but yeah, those, those divisions are interestingly not the same ones as ethnic divisions. So you now have a lot of uh, Hispanic and Asian Trump supporters. Uh, 30 to 40% of those minorities are now, now supporting the Republicans. So it sort of cuts through ethnicity to some to a large extent. Uh, we see that in the, some of these divisions also in Britain as well. So there are different kinds of tribes. There's the political tribes, which are important in the US and increasingly in Canada, of course, uh, and with Brexit increasingly in Britain. And then you have the ethnic tribalisms, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Surrey or, or Richmond between um, you know, Sikhs and perhaps in or or, or in Britain we had some uh, issues between Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims in Leicester. Uh, you know, we had some of these sort of conflicts that come from the homeland where there are deep-seated ethnic conflicts. Those can be imported into diasporas. Canada is a multicultural country of 40 million people, but it has challenges with foreign interference from the governments of India, China, and Iran. There are concerns about affordable housing, the state of the environment, the quality and quantity of schools and hospitals, all of which have some Canadians asking serious questions about the Trudeau Liberal government's plans to welcome half a million immigrants every year. You must have experienced that in, in your career on, on uh, uh, campuses where the race card is played in such a way just to, to shut down uh, discourse. Yeah, I mean, the race taboo, which is sort of central to my, the next my book, which is coming out in May, um, I think the race taboo lies at the center of everything we know of as wokeness and cancel culture, for example, uh, because it has a there's a sacredness around race, which to some extent could be expanded to to you know sex and gender and sexuality as well, whereby those if you become radioactive if you sort of uh, cross cross red lines on those topics. Um, it's very much about a totalizing shutting down of shades of gray, squashing it into a black and white. You're either a, a tolerant person or you're a bigot. There's no, you know, for example, with immigration, you're either open, uh, which is at least in theory, open to pretty much open borders, or you are uh, a, a xenophobe. Instead of being able to have a, a reasonable conversation about going slower, uh, you can't go slower because immediately you're tagged as being, uh, oh, you, you want to 
deport everybody and, and go back to, you know, in the 1950s. So so it's a very immature conversation because this taboo uh, has been successfully institutionalized by the uh, by progressives initially in the 1970s sort of and 80s. Um, well, actually, in the mid 60s in the United States, but, you know, it, it emerging and spreading thereafter. Uh, it simply makes it impossible to have these conversations. Now, the other thing I would say is without the um, very sort of inflated anti-racism taboo, which is stretched to include everything, including uh, hiking and saying anyone can make it in America and so forth, um, uh, this taboo is 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 obviously it's used to cancel people, to fire people, and to uh, no platform, but it's also used to, to stifle debate. And we wouldn't have the rise of the AFD in Germany, Le Pen in France, the UKIP in Britain, none of these things would have occurred, Trump in the United States, they would not have occurred if you didn't have these politically correct taboos. Because what the taboos do, I use the example of a, like in the Soviet Union, you you had one department store selling one pair of pants, one color. Um, if you wanted anything else, you had to go to the black market. So likewise, if you have these taboos, all the politicians have to have one position. So in Canada, both all parties essentially have the same view on immigration because they're hemmed in on taboos with the exception of the people's party right so because the mainstream parties essentially have to all be pro-mass immigration that creates a market opportunity for a political black marketeer which which in this case the ppc who will offer they're the only ones who are questioning the orthodoxy and that's what happens in europe as well i mean the sweden democrats the mainstream swedish parties would just refuse to talk about numbers by 2014, the Sweden Democrats were on 12.5%, and they've recently, I mean, they've hit 25%. Same with the AFD, say exactly the same dynamic. And Trump was the only one of 17 primary candidates to foreground the border and immigration. So there again, the reluctance of the other primary candidates to touch that issue is also linked to this taboo. So I think the people who are pushing and enforcing these taboos don't realize that actually what they're doing is they're just creating a market for populists. Eric Kaufman spent 20 years at Birkbeck College at the University of London, including a dozen as a professor. He explained why he switched to the University of Buckingham to start the new Center for Heterodox Social Science. But all it takes is really one committed activist to sort of connect with other activists in other departments or online or with radical students, and they can actually cause a lot of trouble. They can submit internal uh, investigation, you know, they can they can make complaints that lead to an internal investigations automatically. Uh, they can sort of stir up a, a Twitter mob and try to get open letters uh, against you. So these were all tactics that were being used by a, quite a small group of, of radicals. But the problem is that a lot of um, people who might be on the left but are more tolerant, let's say, um, well, just they just won't want to fall afoul of these people, or they will just somehow grant them a, a, a certain amount of um, well, I, I guess a sort of trust. Take a take a sort of positive view of these activists and think, well, their hearts must be in the right place. So, I don't necessarily want to sort of uh, speak up against them. And what that then creates is a climate of. Uh, sort of speech suppression and 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 people wind up self-censoring and and I just I was concerned also that activists and their allies might come into key positions that could block my research um and because they have these ethics committees which vet research and have the power to delay you for a long time so it was just 
you know, getting to the, now, it wasn't getting necessarily intolerable the way it had it had been for people like Kathleen Stock, the gender critical feminist at University of Sussex, who got more or less hounded off that campus, but uh, and out of her job. But so it wasn't at that level. But it was just kind of an annoyance and 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 enough to be a factor, one factor among several contributing factors to be saying, okay, well, if I can find a space that's more sort of open-minded and free to enter, then I'll take it. And I'd been at Birkbeck for 20 years and I'd been in the system for 24 years. So this was quite a quite a big move because I sort of gave up a, a very secure professorship for what is more of a kind of almost entrepreneurial startup-y kind of environment, but yet offered me the freedom that that I don't think I had at, uh, at Birkbeck. That was my guest, Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at the University of Buckingham and the new Center for Heterodox Social Science in London. Come back next week for part two. Now it's time on the Breaker.News podcast for Around the Rim. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Rim. In the Taiwan News, China intensifies espionage as Taiwan's presidential election draws near. At least 16 people have been accused of spying for China since the beginning of 2023, compared with the 44 espionage cases between 2013 and 2019. This comes ahead of the January 13th presidential election in Taiwan. In Kyoto News, China halts imports of Nishikigoi carp from Japan amid Fukushima Rao. Bilateral ties remain strained over the wastewater discharge from the Fukushima nuclear plant. Nishikigoi have been gaining popularity overseas as pets in recent years. Japanese exports of the fish in 2022 amounted to $41.7 million. China was the biggest importer of the colorful carp last year, accounting for 19% of the total exports from Japan. In the Hong Kong Free Press, Hong Kong distributes bedbug warning leaflets at airport amid outbreaks in South Korea, France, and the UK. Over the past few months, Paris and a few large cities in Britain have seen bedbug outbreaks. Infestations have been reported in South Korea since September. Some Koreans chose to stay at home during holidays to avoid bedbugs as at least 17 outbreaks have been reported in the capital of Seoul and the cities of Busan and Incheon as of November 5th. That's Around the Rim on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. Now it's time on the Breaker.News podcast for Cascadia Calling. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Northwest. In the Oregonian, Portland homeless camping ban on hold after judge orders pause. Enforcement of the ban, intended to clear unhoused people from city streets and green spaces, was set to begin Monday. The lawsuit, filed in September, alleges the city's camping restrictions violate current Oregon law and the state constitution because they subject people who are involuntarily homeless to unreasonable punishments including potential fines and jail time, for engaging in unavoidable activities such as sleeping and staying warm and dry. In King 5, scientists report over 400 earthquakes at Mount St. Helens since mid-July. Despite the elevated earthquake activity, scientists said they are not concerned with the recent trend. For comparison, there were about 11 earthquakes at the site per month since 2008. Scientists these days have better sensors that are more sensitive to a broader range of earthquake activity, gas sensors that alert them in real time what species of gases are emitted from the volcano, and satellites that measure increased thermal activity coming out of a volcano. All of these were not available in the 1980s. In The Times Colonist, Duncan UFO sighting depicted on New Coin was a party trick. 
Dan Hughes says his friends created the spaceship out of wood, candles, and a dry cleaning bag and let it float into the sky in the early hours of New Year's Day 1970. When the Royal Canadian Mint released the coin depicting the Duncan UFO sighting, the sixth in a series highlighting Canada's tales of unexplained phenomena, Hughes figured it was finally time to tell the real story. That's Cascadia calling on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. Every week we end the Breaker.News podcast on a tasty note by awarding the goodness of a virtual Nanamo bar to people making a difference. A virtual version of the province's favorite dessert bar goes this week to Métis people around British Columbia. November 16th is Louis Riel Day, in tribute to the Métis leader who died on the day in 1885. You can nominate someone for a virtual Nanamo bar. Send me an email to bob at thebreaker.news. Spruce Hill Contracting, Custom Homes and Renovations. Find more information at sprucehill.ca. That's it for the Breaker.News podcast for the week of November 12th, 2023. I'm Bob Mackin. Thanks for joining me. Did you know that on the 12th of November in 1990, Tim Berners-Lee published a proposal for what became the World Wide Web? Now you know. Send me your feedback. Send me your story ideas to Bob at thebreaker.news. Bookmark thebreaker.news. You can also find us at thebreaker.ca. Sign up for the email newsletter and get updates to your inbox. For news as it's happening, go to Twitter, also known as X, for the Breaker News. And you can support the Breaker for as little as $2 a month. For more information, go to patreon.com slash thebreakernews. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thebreakernews. Until next week.